You've heard the word freedom. If you ever stop and ask yourself, how would you define that word? I think some might say that to be free means to have no hindrances, to have no obstacles, to be able to do whatever you want to do. But another perspective on the true meaning of freedom is not really freedom from, but to be free for. And what I mean is many of us want to do what is good, but we don't always have the freedom to say yes to that thing that we, in our deepest place, do want to do. It is freedom for. And if you think about if everyone just had freedom from, and that was as far as it went, and we all live that way, we'd be living in a land of chaos, which goes back to the beginning of creation, the early story that we read in Genesis where what was found in the very beginning was chaos, a formless void. The mysterious Hebrew word was tohu and bohu, and God created order out of the chaos. And that order, a system of love that actually binds us all together. And it's freedom to say yes to enter into that system of divine love that is seen throughout the world if we only have the eyes to see it and the will to build it. And freedom like this is nothing less than to be free, to become exactly who we were born and created to be as human beings. Now, when Mary encountered the angel Gabriel, I think of that as a moment of great freedom, too, because more than what many of us mortals would have been able to do, she was free to say yes. She said yes to God's yes, as Paul Tillich would put it. Now, the former uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, has meditated on the nature of freedom at Christmas in an essay that he recently published in, in Plough Quarterly earlier this month, in which he writes, what happens when God becomes human is not simply an emergency plan to tidy up the forgiveness of our sins, but a matter of releasing us to be what we were made to be. And that means recognizing that we exist in a complex network for the sharing of life. He says that sin is to think that we are self-sufficient self because the idea of self-sufficiency really is a myth. And tragically, this notion of self-sufficiency, self when we believe in it, we buy into it, ends up isolating us from others and even worse, tragically, isolating us from ourselves. In his words, he says, we don't and can't know what we are as participants in the symphonic whole, and so we block off or screen out the life we need to receive refusing to share the life we need to give. His whole point is that at Christmas, when things heavenly and things earthly are brought together, that frees us from cosmic isolation so that we can be for communion at last. We dispel the fiction that freedom is separation rather than connection. And this changes the world. Now, I love this season of Christmas. I love um, the lights and the noise and the gatherings. Um, 
I don't always love the stress. I don't always love the craziness. Um, actually, as I was uh, coming to church, my daughter was driving, who's 17, and is now allowed to, with her per learner's permit, and she said, you know, it, you can tell that it's Christmas and that people are getting into the spirit because um, earlier today when she was walking the dog, she saw at an intersection there were uh, three cars lined up, it turned green, and nobody moved, and nobody honked. <laughs> and people who are local will know that is not typical. But this season, I think sometimes to our peril, can come with a lot of expectation. It's a flip side of how wonderful the season can be is the pressure that it puts on many of us so much of the time. And the best part of the season for me is when we can get past that. And we can, we can be able to just enjoy and to savor the best part of the season, which is us being in communion with other people, with loved ones, with strangers even. In doing so, bringing us into communion with God. And the joy of Christmas is that. And we need this, I think, more perhaps than ever at this time. We're living in a difficult time. We're living in a time of deep darkness, like Isaiah puts it. The winter solstice, you may have noticed, happened just two days ago. And so that means it's three days before Christmas morning we get the shortest and the darkest day of the year. And in the Bible, it doesn't say that Jesus was born on December 25th. It doesn't even say that Jesus was born in winter. And yet the wisdom of the church has put this time together with the wisdom of the natural order. This darkest time of the year is when the sun and the sun both arrive. The word solstice actually means sun standing still. And for these three days, it's like there's no movement. It's like the light isn't coming. But on this third day, on the third day, we begin to see the brightness just start to dawn. As the writer and theologian Alexander Shia puts it, in Christmas, the deepest dark is where grace goes to be reborn. Heaven and earth are brought together as both the sun and the sun are arriving at this very time. And I actually want to close with a story that is not a typical story to be told at Christmas, but it's a story about the Incarnation, about Jesus' real Incarnation. And it happened to me a few months ago when I was with a number of pilgrims from St. John's when we all went to the Holy Land. We were there for the first few weeks in October. And I should say, of course, as you can imagine, my heart is breaking right now for the people of that land. I personally fell in love with the land and the people Christians, the Muslims, and the Jews, and I'm praying fervently for peace, especially during this dark, dark time. But a few days before the war broke out, we had the opportunity to go to what is considered probably the most holy site in all of Christendom, which is the Holy Sepulchre. This is the site of Jesus' tomb, and if you've never been, it is an astounding place and a confusing place, because within the walls of this somewhat large church complex are many different chapels. There are stairways, stone stairways where you go up and you go down and you go around corners. 
candles everywhere. And in the middle of the church complex is what is believed to be the stone of Golgotha, where the cross was mounted, where Jesus was crucified. And if Jesus was on the cross in that location, just looking straight forward, not that many feet ahead of him, maybe 20 or 30 feet, or a little bit more than that, is where the tomb is believed to be, where St. Helena identified the true tomb of Christ. Now, if you go there, you go into a structure within the structure that's called the edicule, and you go and you can touch a stone piece of pavement, but it's very hard to see what the original tomb was really like. It's been built over and changed. We had a great opportunity when we went. Our guide, whose name was Eod Kumri, some of you, I think, know him. Uh, Eod, <coughs> Eod told us about a place that he was going to bring us before he took us in to the sepulchre. There is a chapel that is owned by the Syriac, Syriac Church, and it's basically carved out of stone. It's very cave-like, and there's no sign. You could, you'd never find it unless you knew exactly where to look. It's behind where the tomb is. And if you go into that chapel, uh, you can see where the candle waxes over things, and you can see the, the darkness from the smoke uh, of many services over hundreds of years, and the most beaten up wooden altar that you've ever seen in your life. And then over in the corner, in a dark, there's like a hole in the wall. And if you go into there, there are two niches carved into stone. These are tombs. These are just large enough that a human could crawl in and lie in there. And that is a place where tombs were relatively recently uncovered that go back to the lifetime of Jesus. And so our guide said, tradition holds that this was the burial place of Joseph of Arimathea, but... St. Helena might have gotten it wrong. That could be the real tomb. The experience that I had, and that I think some of the others on our trip had, walking into that space and crouching down, putting my hand on the cold stone, noticing the shape of those niches. In the early church, they pointed out that the womb and the tomb are brought together in Easter. It was very much like that. And I was overcome with this sensation as if time was collapsing. More than I've ever experienced in my life, an awareness of the physicality and the humanness and the fragility of the bodily life of Jesus. The heavenly and the earthly coming together. Like how it says in that Christmas hymn, in Jesus God, in man was pleased to dwell. Because in Jesus, what is truly heavenly and what is truly earthly become one. And in Jesus, we find our freedom. Freedom from separation and freedom for communion. Freedom for the love that liberates. And freedom to receive this true life that is given to the world and is coming into the world at this very moment.